A budding author grabs something from a high supermarket shelf. And so, what literary character is born? The answer to that at the end of the show. My name's Tom Scott, and this is Lateral. Welcome to another edition of the Lateral Podcast, and we are, as ever, joined by three captivating guests. Uh, sorry, that's uh, captive guests, because the doors are locked and we've got them for the next 45 minutes or so. We start with, from his own YouTube channel, Jeremy Fielding. Hello, thank you for having me. Now, I met you a while back at uh, ThinkCon. You are, how do you describe yourself? I've got maker, but that doesn't seem to encompass everything that you do. Yeah, I struggle with this every time someone asks me what I do. <laughs> but my real goal is to teach people about engineering, but I try to design and build things that are interesting so they will want to learn about engineering. So that's really the goal. I, I, everything from building robots in my garage to all types of machines and gadgets and teaching stuff as well. But yeah, that's... That's what I do. So making is, you know, only part of what I'm after. And making is like a means to the end. Which I think <laughs> is also true for our second guest. Uh, also joining us, Estefani, from your YouTube channel, are you going with Maker? Are you going with something else? Because last I saw, you were taking a lot of pictures of your cat. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, I think uh, I just like to invent things. So, because I, I, I think my dream is to become like, dog from you know back to the future and i just want to build stuff in my garage so like i guess and then like i think as a result i could maybe inspire people hopefully the little stephanie's out there who you know like because growing up it was just like kind of male focused inventors so yeah i'm an inventor a mexican yes <laughs> Our last guest is not a maker and is returning to YouTube after several years away. Now, Ines, from Draw Curiosity, you made a guest video for me many years ago. Thank you very much for that. What are you coming back with? So I'm coming back with actually some very long-awaited videos because they were ones that I planted the seeds for just as I decided to take my break. Um, one is, so I used to have knee-length hair and I cut off a one meter long braid. And so I asked people to try to guess how much it weighed. So finally, the answer to that, along with some interesting science is going to come. And I also measured how stressful my PhD was. Um, and spoiler alert, um, I was indeed very burnt out from it. I think everyone I know who has who has doctor before their name, which which by the way, on the video call that we're recording this on, you actually came in with your default name with the doctor in it, which I appreciate. That's that's making sure it's out there. Um, I think everyone I know with that in their name is just has that memory of being a burned out ball of stress. A lot of people joke that PhD really stands for permanently head damaged from the process. Oh, wow. <laughs> Let's hope it hasn't affected your uh, your lateral thinking skills at all, because that is what the show's about. <laughs> the questions on the show are like cosmic wormholes, transporting us to realms of knowledge and imagination we never thought possible. So let's explore the vast universe of ideas before we're sucked into an intellectual black hole. I'm going to start you off with question one, which is, why did Alec photocopy the back of his extension cord? It's a short question, so I'll give you one more time. Why did Alec photocopy the back of his extension cord? First, how do you define the back of an extension cord? I'm <laughs> curious, what, which, which aspect of this extension cord is the back of it? I 
wonder if this is an international thing where different countries have different names for this thing. So the 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 British use would be four gang plug, which is that it is a you plug one into the socket on the wall and you end up there's a cord and then there's four sockets, six sockets there. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I don't yeah. know what the translation of that would be for various other countries. But that's that's what I'd call an extension cord. Is he doing this once or is he having a continuous photocopy running as if to keep track of whether other people are plugging things in and what direction the cords are going? Yeah, I guess I want to make sure I have the orientation right in my mind before I can figure out why I would do such a thing. So if I have a an extension cord that's got four plugs, what I'm, I'm envisioning on the top, we have plugs like that. And you flipped it over, there's a backside that's maybe flat so it could sit on the floor. Um, the only thing that would usually be there is, you know, the rating and uh, information like that. Perhaps it's got something to do with the capacity of the extension cord, wanting to keep track of whether too much power is being drawn or if you're plugging the right things in. Am I even like nudging in the right direction? Mm. <laughs> It's it's a very small nudge, but it is technically in the right direction. Okay. Um, okay. I, I'll give you a slightly improved mental picture in that it's uh, kind of one of those power strips mm -hmm. rather than like okay. a, a coiled yeah. cable. But yeah, it's it's the backside from the sockets. You've got that bit right. So I'm thinking more hmm. like to be able to trace it on some computer or a device or something to build something around it. Maybe they want to like hang it somewhere or like put magnets in like place it somewhere so it's like more accessible is this the kind of questions we're looking for <laughs> yeah you're definitely heading the right way there i uh I, I like where you're going with this i mean this is again the only reason i would take that photocopy yeah and uh put it in my modeling software you know and get the whole dimensions yeah. and things like that so that i could i could make something related to it so that seems like a another good reason to do that because like i have one right next to me right now and i put magnets on it so i can just put it wherever i want and snap it on things because we used yeah. to cosplay ours we used to put little velcro things around it so we could attach it anywhere you don't need to photocopy it for that because we've all done projects around our, our extension cords without the need to mm. photocopy so we might all yeah. be wrong so it's not necessarily that he needed to photocopy it, but he just, he decided this was the, he had a reason. We want to know what that reason is. Was uh, he trying to be a smart Alec? That is actually why the question writer named him Alec. This is not a specific Alec, <laughs> but th thank you. Now I don't have to read that joke out at the end. You have correctly worked <laughs> out why he's called Alec in this question. Um, yeah, if you were building something, you could take measurements and you could copy it, but it, in this case, specifically, a photocopy helps a lot more. Is someone asking for proof that he has an extension cord, so he decides to photocopy and fax it to them? It's more practical. <laughs> You're dancing around it. Like, you've, you've come up with solutions. It's a solution to something you've already mentioned, particularly you, Estefani. You, you've oh. said you were doing something very much like this. Is this based in the 80s or is this in like current times? <laughs> How dare I use photocopy technology? <laughs> Could be any time. Because like, well, like, it depends, right? So if it's like a, in the 80s, then there's not a lot you can do with a photocopy. But nowadays you can photocopy it and scan it and then put it on like a 3D CAD, AutoCAD, and then like print something. Just a, just a regular plain paper photocopy. 
Well, because you can do so much with it afterwards, depending on the technology that you have access to at the time. Well, a photocopy would allow you to just take a piece of paper and yeah. figure out if it will fit somewhere. Oh, yeah, So yeah, yeah. you wanted okay. to cut it out and just like test fit, make sure it fits in the space, that it's the right size, the right orientation, like a picture. But why uh, not use just the thing to measure with? Like if you, yeah, I agree. That's... You, you're so close. There's there's one more thing. If you have this photocopy, what can you do that you couldn't easily do? With oh, I know, I know. Oh, I don't know. Should I say it? Go, oh, please. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. So I'm thinking so that you can like mark something on a wall to make a hole with and like hang it. Yep. You're absolutely right. In fact, you don't have to mark anything <laughs> on the wall because you've got the photocopy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you can trace or you can poke through it. Yeah. yeah. You can do so much with paper. Mm. You can attach the photocopy to the wall with the screws that you then hang this power strip on and then you just rip the paper away. Oh, I feel like so accomplished right now. <laughs> this is great. Like, I don't have to work today, right? After this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're absolutely right. The photocopy of the power strip was to use as a template for hanging on the wall. Each of our guests has brought a question along with them. I don't know the question. I definitely don't know the answer. And we start today with Jeremy. What do you have for us? This question came in from Alan Chen. And the question is, U.S. college basketball players are only permitted to use a limited range of numbers on their jerseys, namely 0, 0, 0, 1 to 5, 10 to 15, 20 to 25, 30 to 35, 40 to 45, and 50 to 55. Why? I'll say it again. U.S. college basketball players are only permitted to use a limited range of numbers on their jerseys, namely 0, 0, 0, 1 to 5, 10 to 15, 20 to 25, 30 to 35, 40 to 45, and 50 to 55. Why? I have two likely incorrect hypotheses. <laughs> okay. One, one is the less safe for work one, which is they probably don't want the number 69 cropping up. <laughs> I, I was going to say that one as well. Like, all the funny numbers are away from that list. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and then my other one is, um, well, I might be wrong about this, but I, th I think, I don't know, I haven't really watched much basketball, but are there five people per team in basketball? I think there's loads of people per team in basketball and they can swap out. I think you get substitutions, don't you? Mm. Oh God, I know nothing about basketball. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the whole team could be huge, yes. It will, it, there are yeah. definitely more than five members on the team. But on the court itself, is it not just five against five? If if there's not, then my hypothesis goes down the drain. But if it's just yeah, five... Yeah, it's 5v5. Five, it's five five. Then maybe you could have your mm. one to five. Maybe you could have your top substitutes, zero and zero, zero. Um, and then as you knock players out, maybe that's when the 10 comes to substitute the zero and the 11 comes to substitute the one. This is my first working hypothesis. Okay. Uh, no, I would say you're you're pretty cold on that one. <laughs> Is basketball American? I don't know. Basketball is it's, uh, it's probably predominantly American, although uh, it's played in the Olympics, so every country has yeah. basketball teams. Yeah. But where, where was it invented? 
It's not relevant to the question, but maybe. <laughs> I, I really don't know. That's a that's an interesting question. There's an old story about it being that someone put uh, like nets for oranges up on a hoop, and you had to try and throw the ball in there. And I think that's a myth, because the the story goes though like the ball kept getting stuck, so they cut off the bottom of the nets. I just I seem to remember a debunk of that somewhere. Ah, I know that the Aztecs mm. had like this circle stone things and they had to like hit a ball with their hip towards that and aim at that. But that's not basketball. They say they claim soccer for that. <laughs> yeah, that's the old Aztec <laughs> ball game, which yeah. was meant to involve human sacrifice at some point as well. I yeah, think it's I've... so fun. <laughs> 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 but I, I do have a hypothesis that has nothing to do with Aztecs. Yeah, my producer um, just said it was invented at a YMCA in the US with peach baskets. I nearly got that right. I my question is: Does this have anything to do with the Chicago Bulls? No, it is definitely okay. not. This is okay. this is college basketball. College basketball. I was wondering, did like Michael Jordan claim twenty seven forever? And nobody else can use it because that's the only thing I know about basketball. Michael well, there Jordan. are retired numbers in a lot of sports. Michael Jordan was twenty three. Oh, twenty three. Oh. Wow, yes. I'm so wrong. And I love Michael Jordan. <laughs> See, I don't know anything about basketball. <laughs> a lot of teams, a lot of sports have retired numbers. If someone was, okay. was that legendary or that infamous or, uh, right. that, or that shunned by society now, they do sometimes retire the number. But Okay, wait, this is actually an interesting clue because retired numbers is a problem for this rule. Retired numbers is a problem for this rule. Because college teams do retire numbers and then you only have so many numbers left. So I'm wondering if it could be to do with the pronunciation. Maybe for some reason, one to five is easier to say than six to seven. And like you've got 16, 17, 25, 27, 36, 37. Like you're, there's a lot of repetition and maybe there's some ambiguity in the way and you remove more of that. But then you still have the problem of 23, 24, but maybe less with 13. Yeah. So this is my next hypothesis. Keep going with that. You're you're onto something. Uh, it comes for the commentators because they go by name rather than number. Are the players' names like for the commentators on a like a five by five grid, and they 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 want to translate from the number on the jersey to the name, and that's an easy way to do it, and they can't read more than five by five or something like that. Uh, who would benefit from using limited jersey numbers? The jersey manufacturers would, because they don't have to create the numbers six through nine to go on the back. If, if they're all two-digit numbers, which we... Like, That's true. So They would still be two-digit numbers. Yeah, is there some reason they can't use six, seven, eight, and nine? Uh-huh, think about that. Is there some, some keypad or some electronic thing that doesn't go that far? Or the score clock doesn't show those higher numbers or something like that? Well, the score the scorecard definitely does, but keep going there. You're 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 getting so warm. I almost don't want to stop you. Like, help help him out, guys. Could it could it be that six, um, eight, nine, and three? They all kind of look a little bit ambiguous if they're a number on a chest. If you can just see half of it, maybe it's again harder to disambiguate those players. But what what makes what makes six, seven, eight, and nine harder to communicate than the smaller numbers? Oh, and you're on the right God. path. Yeah, it's fingers. You've only got five fingers. So if you want to call a substitution or yell at someone from the side of the court and you want to hold up your hands to say like number 23, yeah. you can yeah. do that with two hands if you don't have more than five as each digit. 
There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> oh wow, that's hard. It's to avoid confusion so that the refs can just use hand signals to indicate the player's number. Spot the nerd who went for like keypads and commentator <laughs> view grid before the literal hands I have in front of my eyes right now. <laughs> Oh, that's a lovely question. Thank you, Jeremy. <laughs> well, that's a yeah. high five <laughs> for that one. Yeah, so the, the, the primary goal there is just to communicate clearly when the refs want to indicate a certain player number. If you're holding up a two and a five, per se, you know for sure that that's number 25 and not number seven or some other number that would be above five. We have a listener question. Thank you to Nathan Lipke. Colorado's Department of Transportation sometimes closes I-70 eastbound at Floyd Hill for about 45 minutes of the morning rush hour, even if weather conditions are excellent. Why? I'll say that one more time. Colorado's Department of Transportation sometimes closes I-70 eastbound at Floyd Hill for about 45 minutes of the morning rush hour, even if weather conditions are excellent. Why? Where in Colorado? Uh, Floyd Hill. More than that, I couldn't tell you. Okay. <laughs> hey. Uh, I've only ever seen highways closed when you have, in, in terms of regularly closing a highway, I generally think of that as being, but it's not really closed. What I'm picturing is when they, they, op they essentially make both lanes go the same direction because so much traffic is going into town that they limit the traffic on one side or they make both, make all the lanes go into town, so to speak. Am I even am I even on the right track? No, they are just closing one way. Okay, the highway one is closed. Way. Maybe there's a lot of traffic going one way. Maybe there's a lot of demand to go into Floyd Hill or out of Floyd Hill. Um, whether the fact that there's so much traffic means that they're a lot more likely to experience accidents and maybe they want those lanes closed so they can have emergency services to respond faster by going down the other lane. Wow, I like that answer. Even if it's not right. <laughs> yeah. I do as well. But in this case, when I say closed, I mean closed. There's a detour in place. That whole stretch of interstate is closed eastbound. Is this mm. because there's a cult meeting every day in that area? <laughs> like, only wrong answers. <laughs> I mean, apologies to the people of Floyd Hill, Colorado, unless you are genuinely in a cult, in which case I hope you're able to get out of it soon. Um... I'm wondering, could this be... It's sort of the opposite of LA where driving is encouraged. Maybe they're trying to convince people to use public transport. So by making it a little bit harder to go both ways, maybe they're encouraging people to take alternate routes that do not involve a car with the goal of reducing traffic over time. I think it'd be difficult to do that on the interstate. I'm pretty sure there's some federal laws about that. Never mind. I don't understand America. <laughs> <laughs> Who does? Same. Uh, Nobody uh, Stephanie? does. Oh, no, I was just going to ask if it is every day because I forgot the question. So, no, it's not every day. It is sometimes. Sometimes. But it will be around the morning rush hour for about 45 minutes and it will always be eastbound. So do we know how many days a week or do we know? Is it like a schedule thing or is it just random? Oh, um, without giving too much away, um, it will not be on a... F they'll know when it has to happen. By they'll know, as in people who are driving, or the state, <laughs> or the road? Have a think about some of the words in the question. Eastbound, Floyd. When a Pink Floyd concert is in town. <laughs> no, I'm joking. 
everybody knows. <laughs> like, <laughs> but it's not weather. No, it's not weather. Yeah, it's not weather. Says, Does Colorado yeah. have earthquakes or any other semi-regular natural disasters? We're driving one it's way. It's not with a me. natural disaster, but you're along some more of the right lines there. It's not weather, mm-hmm. but it's not man-made. Huh. Is, are we having an issue with, um, is there a river nearby or is there water that maybe floods that area and makes it so that they have to close it until the water levels go down? That'd still be weather. I'm one, oh, okay. I was about to say, maybe it could be wind related, but okay, that's also weather. So never mind. You are running through most of the, most of the conditions here and you're, you're, oh, you're close. Oh, okay. I'd, well, again, might also be weather, but I wouldn't consider this weather. Probably also wrong. But is it something where eastbound you're driving into the rising sun and precisely the way the sun is coming up, it blazes into your eyes and it's very unsafe. So they close it for that period. Yes. Spot on. Oh, my God. Wow. Whoa. <laughs> LA so should good. do that. <laughs> eastbound in the winter months on a hill. So even if the conditions are fine, actually more so if the conditions are fine because the sun is going to be clear in the sky, the sun reflects exactly off the wrong angle of the hill you're going up and you are staring directly into the sun. So there's just this section of I-70 where Colorado Department of Transportation judges it too unsafe, closes the entire interstate eastbound because people keep getting dazzled and crashing. Ines, it's on you. Your question, please. Okay, so this listener question has been sent in by Jonathan Levy. How did an old quarry in Swindon, England, provide evidence towards the theory that ancient Romans drove their carts and chariots on the left side of the road? I'll read that one more time. How did an old quarry in Swindon, England, provide evidence towards the theory that ancient Romans drove their carts and chariots on the left side of the road? Everyone's looking at me. Everyone's looking at the one Brit on this call. (laughs) And this particular Brit cannot think of anything about Swindon other than the magic roundabout, which is is a roundabout surrounded by five smaller roundabouts that are all treated as one big traffic thing. And you you drive in and you follow the arrows and you hope you come out at your destination. (laughs) As far as I know, that's not an aquarium, not from Roman times. (laughs) I'm going to be honest. I don't know what a quarry is. I'm just going with it. <laughs> uh, I, I had to check this because I also, when I first read it, I thought, what's okay. a quarry? I know it's mine related. Um, it's basically an open pit mine. And imagine some sort of terracing. So you would basically drive your way down into the mine. So in the times oh. before elevators existed, you know, that's how you would go down into the mine and return from out of the mine certainly if uh we're talking about a quarry then we're we're digging and if you're excavating then there is an opportunity to find how things are oriented so how might you do that oh man i i I was stuck on thinking they found some ancient roman like amphitheater or something like that and they were clearly driving on the left because honestly i hadn't finished that thought (laughs) (laughs) so like is there like indentations like like but that wouldn't tell you which way right i guess like indentations on the road or like on the stone like because they always went through that area so like 
you know. I know there's there's an old story that the reason we drive on the left in the UK mm-hmm. is that you needed your right hand free for holding a sword in case someone, you know, when you're on horseback, you always rode on the left because that, and then that became tradition. And then car manufacturers in the US wanted to uh, avoid British imports and so decided to drive on the right. I don't know if that's true. Someone, if you want to fact check that, please don't email me about it, all right? I'm just going to flag that as legend and just move on. So I will say that this is in the notes as a fun fact to provide when you guess the question correctly. Um, So it is correct, but not the answer to this question because we don't necessarily care about the swords going to the quarry. I will say, Estefanie is kind of on the right track. (gasps) Track? Mm. Pun intended? Pun intended, yes. (laughs) Yes, I like it. Okay. So you were talking about Uh, archaeology and them finding things in the quarry. And I will also add that the, you know, the actual geology or where this was, you don't need to know anything about Swindon. It just so happens that this is the place where (laughs) the evidence was found. No one needs to know anything about Swindon. (laughs) I mean, I can only imagine that if you found, I mean, if you found a, a relatively intact roadway and... You know, debris on the side. I mean, it's not like you're gonna find a fully buried person in <laughs> in <laughs> on a chariot, and he happens to be facing the right way. So I wouldn't expect that to be the case. But <laughs> but I think uh, the only other thing I could think of would be if there was uh, the way the debris is oriented uh, in the in the in the, at the site where this was dug up somehow indicated the flow of traffic, and I'm hoping that that's another another clue. I feel like that that's definitely the direction we're headed, but I just I don't know how to nail it and say yeah. this is what they found. That is on the right oh. or left track. How would you find out? <laughs> okay, so I'm still on the track um of like indentations of mm-hmm. the tracks. And so like are these chariots that were being pulled by horses? And if so, then it's like the horse hooves direction, like their tracks, their markings. But, okay, so one thing to think about is everything is going in and out of the quarry. So there will be yeah. indentations going both ways. But right, there's right. a telltale clue. Because I was thinking about, like, there's no way to tell which way they were going if they're just tracks. But then I was like, well, if there's, like, a specific animal, then you know the shape of their feeties. <laughs> there's a way, but then yeah, I mean, if they're yeah. passing each other in the road, then you would have tracks going in in both directions, and also yeah. you'd have yeah. orientation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if we're talking about horse footprints, then yes, I think that would that would clearly indicate which direction people were traveling. But it would be on both sides. So how would you know which which side they were going on, if that makes sense. You'd just have ruts in the ground, wouldn't you? You wouldn't have yeah. you wouldn't have hoof prints there. Mm-hmm. You'd just have two sets of ruts. Because the hoof prints wouldn't survive. They wouldn't they they'd be all over the place. The ruts would get driven in there. So what other thing, what other permanent mark would they make with that's visible from one side? That's ah Um so when you're going down to the quarry what evidence might a cart leave behind? I did like Tom's answer. I feel like Stephanie and Tom are both going towards the right direction. I have an idea. Mm-hmm. 
what if um I mean if you're if you're hauling material, mm -hmm. the ruts would be deeper on the side that you are leaving on. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's oh. it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Good job. Nice. Nice. We got there between us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good job, team. Yeah. I mean, I liked all the answers. I feel like, you know, Stephanie's, I do think those grooves would probably be deeper if they were using horses. And I'm pretty sure there would be debris, but I don't know if that would be cleared each time more carts go through. But indeed, the grooves are deeper as they're leaving the cargo, so they could ascertain which side was left and which side was kind of, which side was going in, which side was going out, and they were going on the left. And so if you want the okay. full answer with all the facts, um, carts would enter the quarry empty and they would leave heavily laden. In a 1998 archaeological excavation at Blunson Ridge near Swindon, it could be determined which way the cart traffic entered and exited the site. The deeper grooves on one side of the road indicate that the direction of the carts leaving with the heavy load, meaning that a drive on the left wheel was in place. <laughs> Our next question was sent in by Julian Atzlinger. Thank you very much. The Urturm is a large 13th century clock in Graz, Austria. To visitors, it rarely appears to show the correct time, yet locals still tell the exact time from it without issues, thanks to an addition in 1712. How? So one more time. The Urturm is a large 13th century clock in Graz, Austria. To visitors, it rarely appears to show the correct time, yet locals can still tell the exact time from it without issues, thanks to an addition in 1712. How? Does that mean they couldn't tell the time before 1712? Not the exact time. Not the exact time. Is it a solar mm. clock? That's what I was going for, yeah. It is just a, a clock. Like mechanical clock? Uh, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's nothing special about the clock. It's a, it is a clock. I mean, there's clearly something special about the clock, yeah. but it is a clock. It's not a sundial, it is a clock. Okay. Why does it have to have an addition? So like, because it clearly doesn't work if it needs an addition to it. It sounds like whatever the addition is, is augmenting the time that's being shown on the clock. So you see the clock, it's wrong, and this addition is augmenting the time that's seen. Since other people who don't know about the addition or don't know what they're looking at uh, can't tell what time it is. So it's got to be something that's just indicating the clock is off by an hour or five minutes. Or Is this something like daylight savings? Did they have that in Austria in 1712? And maybe they put a little symbol on the hands to indicate that? <laughs> I don't think they'd have had that much precision back then. Okay. Yeah. Does it have to do with birds and cuckoos? Oh, uh, no. I think that's okay. Switzerland, not Austria. But I, I appreciate the... Uh... That's an addition, mm. right? You're right, Jeremy. They added something. Okay. And before that, it was less precise. Uh, maybe not less precise, but much harder to read. Do they add bell tolls at the right hour, regardless of what the clock is saying? No, it, it looks completely wrong okay. to everyone else. Hmm. Harder to read. So, like, did they add, like, another hand? Have they got the hour and the minute switched around? And therefore... Yes, they have. Hi. But yeah. why? Like, that, that okay. you've solved most of it. Mm -hmm. What's no. the story? What happened? Um, I like the idea of this being some sort of about-to-be-invaded city. And so this was their way of tricking invaders so they would get their timings for battles wrong but then the locals would actually know the time it's not in this case 
What did they add in 1712? The seconds hand. Not quite. <gasps> did they Did they add the numbers or the lines? It had to be no? something that when other people look at the clock they still don't know what time it is cuz only the locals oh, right, know what right. time it is. So it, it can't be like an obvious thing. No, Ines is right. The hour and minute hands are swapped. The locals know that, tourists don't. Okay. But so what happened? That. What's the story that got them there? They were running out of material. I don't know. <laughs> 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 oh. You're, you're also right. They added a hand in 1712. Oh, so they only went by hours first and then they added the minutes later. Yep. And so they 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 didn't know the the hours were so long they didn't want to add super long one is that what it is? That's basically it. There wasn't yeah. really a standard back then, wow. so wow. they had a perfectly they had a perfectly functional clock that went round, sweeping every twelve hours. And then this new invention of the minutes hand came along, and I thought, oh, we'll just add a little short one because the minutes are less important. So. <laughs> For most people who look at the clock, go, oh, that's completely wrong. And the locals know to mentally swap the hands around to tell the time. Wow. I never would have guessed that. <laughs> Which means it's time for a guest question from Stephanie. Whenever you're ready, take it away. This listener question was sent in by Zealand. And it is, in 1840, the Treaty of Waitangi was signed in New Zealand between the native Maori and the British settlers. Since Maori was an oral language at the time, how did the Maori chiefs personally sign the treaty other than with an X? I'm going to say it again. In 1840, the Treaty of Waitangi was signed in New Zealand between the native Maori and the British settlers. Since Maori was an oral language at that time, how did the Maori chiefs personally sign the treaty other than with an X? I've got my head in my hands at the minute because I have been to the treaty grounds. Like, it's a, it's a big, important site in New Zealand. Uh, when I was touring there a few years ago, I've, I've been there. Uh, they've, they've got the treaty. And I cannot remember this at all. It's a complete blank in my head. I'm, I'm pretty sure I will have read an information plaque somewhere about this at some point. And it's just, it's just not, not stayed in there. Nothing. I like the idea of them leaving behind a personalised mark. Like, I don't want to say spitting on the signature, but maybe like licking their thumb and putting that down. But maybe I'm reading too much into the oral tradition there. But I'm thinking maybe a fingerprint or something that would be personalised. Um, or maybe, I don't know, sticking hair. Kind of leaving something from the chiefs on that treaty that would be significant. I like that idea. Maybe like a wax seal of some sort. You melt it, uh, impress. Uh, it could be a ring or it could be anything that's, you know, significant to the chief that will be left as a mark to indicate he was there. Or they could take a bit of the treaty with them. Like if you were to tear off a piece and to take it back with you, you could always prove that was you by bringing that piece back. Okay, now, Tom, you're way off, but everybody okay, else fine. is kind of close. Sorry. I had a, re in my head, I've just invented a really clever analog document authentication system, all right? I'll write up a white paper about it, I'll send it off to a security conference. <laughs> what if someone steals it? Okay, okay. <laughs> okay, I've invented a terrible document authentication <laughs> <Yes>. system. <laughs> but 
Sometimes, sometimes the mouth just starts <laughs> running, okay? But it's like, I like the whole unique idea. I'm just going to say that for now. Okay. So do they provide something unique to attach to it or to uh, modify it in some way? Is it from the body or is it an item that they might own? It's, it's, the body sounds closer okay. to the answer. That's I'm, very vague. I'm thinking hair, I'm thinking fingernail clippings, I'm thinking like a kiss. I'm thinking spit, I'm thinking... That's weird because footprint. you'd want to leave an impression that... And, and this was how long ago? 1840. So, I don't know, a million years ago. I'm just trying to imagine what would be... What would be meaningful to someone who just has an oral language as evidence that... They've signed this document, and oh, that's true. Yeah, so leave, leaving a seal, uh, either a wax seal, it could be a brand. Like if I took uh, a hot iron or something, heated it up, and burned it into the paper. Obviously, I don't want to set the paper on fire, but <laughs> <laughs> something that when I saw this again, I would know that yes, I was the one who uh, who did this on this piece of paper. But I don't feel like in eight in the eighteen forties uh, a fingerprint or a footprint would be sufficient. Um, it wouldn't be sufficiently detailed. Is the oral language an important clue there? Is it something that would be important to someone in, in an oral language, or is it just? I'm going through the. I don't think it has anything to do with language. Well, it does inherently, but no. I'm gonna say it didn't involve language or words. I feel like the key there, and I'm just guessing so that we can work together. I feel like the key in the part of it being oral is that, you know, there's no written component. We know it wasn't just a regular signature, right? It had to be something unique to the person that would indicate to them later that was also not written um, that they signed it or that they were there. Um, yes, Jeremy, you're right. It's something written, but it's not like words. Or letters. Is there a okay. symbol that they might display, like something like a circle and a cross, and maybe the circle could be a, a fingerprint or, you know, a continuation of that symbol? Maybe it looks like a little person. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're definitely on the right track of like a thing, but like, how would it be so unique to? Oh, it's the, it's gonna be the moko. It's gonna be uh, a, a marking of a tattoo. Oh, the marking that they use for the, the face tattoo? Yes. <sighs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maori culture has uh, moko, which are uh, face tattoos, which are unique, I think, to each person. So if they were to create a simplified diagram of theirs, that would act as a signature. Mm, okay. Is that right? All right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, oh, the yeah. right answer is by drawing their facial tattoos. So that's how it's so unique to them because they're the only one. Yeah, they're the one with the tattoo on their face. And then if they draw it, then people know, oh, that's the person with the tattoo. So that's how it's unique to them. Yep. yep, yep, yep. Okay. I was um, sitting behind someone on, uh, on the flight I took out of um, New Zealand to Tokyo. And uh, she was Maori. She had moko, quite a lot of, uh, of tattoos on on her face and like japan doesn't really have good associations with tattoos so i was going well what 
she, you know, she's going to be okay on arrival. I don't know who she was, but she was met at the aircraft door by six extremely different airline employees and whisked off to a separate line as a VIP. I have no idea who she was, but all my preconceptions were completely wrong. And I kind of want to know who she was and how she was important now, because she was clearly some very, very important person on that flight. That's awesome. Maybe she'll be signing the next treaty. Which brings us to one final order of business. At the start of the show, I asked a budding author grabs something from a high supermarket shelf, and so, which literary character was born? Before I give the answer, does anyone want to take a guess here? Wait, the supermarket, and also what year is this? (laughs) Uh, This is fairly modern, late 20th century, and literary gives this some some airs and graces that may not quite be what we're looking for here. This is very much pop literature. It grabbed something from the top shelf and a character was born. Uh, It was named, let's say. My immediate thoughts are both. I had this like little book as a kid, um, which was Mr. Orange at the supermarket, which was a talking orange to one of the characters. And I have sometimes had the thought, could you get head rush whilst trying to grab something up high and you imagine the things talking to you? But I'm pretty sure that's not a famous children's book. It's not. And this is <laughs> this is quite a famous book. It's now also been adapted a couple of times into various, uh, I think, TV shows and movies. Um, it is Jack Reacher. <laughs> really? Because he frequently had to reach up to the top shelf of the supermarket and... Uh, Author Lee Child's wife said, oh, this writing gig doesn't work out. You could always be a reacher in a supermarket. And from there, he took the name Jack Reacher for the character. So with that, thank you very much to everyone who's played today. Uh, What's going on in your lives? Where can people find you? We will start with Stephanie. Oh, okay. Yeah, I am on YouTube with just like my name, Stephanie, on Instagram. That's where I post most of the stuff. And also, I'm on a, on TV now on the Discovery Channel with Revenge Nears. Yeah. Ines. Uh, you can find me on YouTube at Draw Curiosity because it's all about things that draw my curiosity and hopefully yours as well. Um, I do have Instagram and Twitter, but the thing I prefer the most is YouTube. And I will be coming back soon, as Tom has mentioned. Hopefully, by the time this is out, I will already be back. But if not, um, it will be coming a few days later. And Jeremy. Uh, I can also be found on YouTube and uh, Twitter, Instagram by the same name, Jeremy Fielding. So that's where you can see my content. And you can find out more about this show at lateralcast.com, where you can also send in your own listener questions. You can find us at lateralcast pretty much everywhere. And there are video highlights every week at youtube.com slash lateralcast. Thank you very much to Jeremy. Thank you. To Inace. Thank you, Tom, for having me. And to Stephanie. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. I've been Tom Scott, and that's been Lateral.